1: Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf, and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mental health and life. In today's episode, I discuss a very important topic, racism and mental health. And to really get the conversation started, I interview my two son-in-laws who are both African-American males on their lived experiences. How they have been targeted simply because of their skin. How racism has impacted their mental health. How they deal with the stress and anxiety and strain racism puts on their lives and mental well-being. What they wish all white people would do and know and more. We also discuss how racism impacts the physical structures of the brain. How to unwire racism from our minds and brains. How to be an anti-racist ally and so much more. Before we begin... I would like to take a moment to acknowledge and honour all the Black, Indigenous and People of Colour's lives lost to police brutality and racism, and to say that all my friends in the Black, Indigenous and People of Colour community, that I am so sorry. And I am here to listen, learn, love and help however I can. I will never fully understand your struggle, but I am your ally and will do whatever it takes to help end racism. If you have a story to share or something you would like to say, please email me. The email and contact details will be in the show notes. For those asking how to help and how to become better educated on the topic of racism, white privilege, non-conscious racism, etc., I'll include helpful links, resources, books, articles, and podcasts in the show notes, as well as links to organizations to donate to and support. And now on to today's episode. Today is a very, very, very important and special day. We're going to be talking about a topic that is very current and very important, and that is racism. And I have two incredibly special people in the studio with me today, my two son-in-laws, Ellie and Jay. And I am so honored and privileged to be their mother-in-law. And they are amazing, incredible men, and they have achieved so much in their lives. And I'm I cannot tell you how proud I am of both of them. And they have such an they've taught me so much. And when it comes to this this whole concept of racism, I couldn't think of two better people to talk to. So welcome Ellie and Jay. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm so pleased to have you guys with me today. It's such an honor. Very, very special to me. And thank you for being prepared to talk about a very difficult topic in this very crazy time that we're in. So can we start by each of you just telling us a little bit about you, about yourselves and your background? So if we can maybe start with you, Ellie.
2: Sure. So yeah, I am an LA native. Part of my family is originally from Nigeria, but I was born in Los Angeles. And I've lived my, pretty much my whole life in the Southern California area. Graduated from college in Southern California as an engineering major, and then got into the tech field with a variety of different companies. And then, you know, years ago, I met my soon-to-be wife, Jessica, and we got married in September 2018. And then, just a few months ago, we moved up to Seattle, Washington, for a new job opportunity at a tech company up here. So. That's where we're at right now, trying to keep things going.
1: And we were, watch, we were just with you this weekend, and we were watching the riots literally from your building. Yeah. So we've been immersed yeah. in that, right? As, as this has been happening, we've been seeing...
2: And we've been witnessing the situation live. It's not just been on TV. It's been outside of our window. So it really yeah. is a real experience for all of us.
1: It's very, very real, this. Jay, tell us a bit about you and your background.
2: Yeah,
0: so I am born and raised in Ohio. I spent, I want to say about twenty two years there. I've always been a bit of a tech geek and and a quiet kid, but when I was twenty two, I made a last minute decision to move to Arizona to kickstart my career a bit. And from there, you know, for the past, you know, few years I've spent, you know working with different uh, organizations, large or small, and leading IT departments across various states in the in the U.S. Uh, most recently, I took a position at a company that is international and made the move over to New York. Because of the state of the world, that sort of took me and us back to California, where it's a bit more comfortable. But yeah, luckily, I'm a family man. I've got a husband and I've got three fur babies.
1: Yep, i got grandbabies. Yeah. two <laughs> <For> grandbabies. <laughs>
0: yeah. And, you know, I, I, live a, I live a good life. Life is good.
1: I just, you know, take my hat off to both of you because you both have had experiences that none of us can actually relate to. And it's just, you know, it's, it's, that's what I wanted you to, to share today is let's talk about your experiences. Can you talk about your lives and your experiences as African-American men, what that means, what that looks like living in the U.S. today, where we supposedly are not supposed to be racist?
2: Yeah, sure. I'll 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 start. I mean, I guess for me, well, obviously both of us have unique experiences because not only are we, you know, black men, but we're you know successful black men, and and so and we've lived in environments that are not necessarily the same as a lot of black men that a lot of black men experience. But we still have had experiences that are unique to black men. And for me, I guess the most visceral experience that made me realize that racism is a thing was, you know, being handcuffed at gunpoint in high school. Now, you know, for most of my life, I lived in uh, mostly white neighborhoods, you know, because my parents could afford to, unlike many Black families. And most of these neighborhoods, uh, you know, really were about, you know, equality and respected me and didn't treat me any different than anybody else. So I didn't experience a lot of overt discrimination in school or in my neighborhood. And so it came to my first real encounter with police that I felt the first real sense of discrimination. And I was in the 10th grade when I was waiting outside school, waiting to get picked up by my mom. And I see a fight across the street, two guys, two black guys, and it looked like some white and, so, and some Mexican guys were fighting with each other. And eventually the, the black guys ran away. Police came a few minutes later and I'm watching this from the opposite side of the street, wondering what's going on. Then one of the police cars drives the op- wrong direction across the street towards me, the two cops out of the car. And they say, freeze, get your hands up. And both point and point their guns at me. And I'm just like, I was, this was, I was just like in a complete state of shock. I thought maybe they thought that one of the sailors was over next to me, but no, they were pointed at me. That's so why I immediately instinctively like put my hands up. They say, get down on the floor. I got down on the floor and then they came over and put my hands behind my back, handcuffed me, and then put me in the police car. And I'm just thinking, like, is this like a movie or something? I can't believe this is happening. And then, you know, from then on, they, you know, they start driving around the neighborhood, asking me, "Oh, do I know what's happened?" I'm like, "This is insane! I'm not involved in any games. I'm a freaking honor student. I don't have, I, my backpack is still like sitting there where you guys, you know, pull me off the ground. I have no idea what's going on. I couldn't even, I couldn't even speak at the time. I was in such shock. And but they had it in their mind that I must be involved because I'm black and I was near the, the scene of the, the, the fight. And so then, you know, they pulled over to where the two, where two of the victims in the fight were and asked them, oh, does this guy look familiar? And thank God they were honest and said no. And so then they let me out of the car and said, hey, uh, you, know, you know, we're going to unhandcuff you now. And basically yelled at me to get my, to, you know, to my hands on the car. So they unhandcuffed me. And then they said like, now do us a favor and get out of here, you know? And that was, that was the end of it. It, it was like, I mean, it's like one of those things that you see, you see in like those, you know, those crimes dramas, but you don't think it's really happening to you. And like at that very same moment, my mom's comes to pick me up and I tell her, or rather my stepmom comes to pick me up. I tell her everything that happened and she's just like, just, it's just blowing her mind. And yeah, it's just, it just was really a wide open welcome to being, what it means to be a Black adult, really. So, yeah, I guess for racism, that's like the, when I think about it, that's what I think about. That's what I thought about when, you know, in the murder of George Floyd and how, and everybody's response to that. And then looking at the cycle of police violence over the decades with whether, you know, it's Mike Brown or Fernando Castile or so many names that have not been atoned for. And yeah, it just reminds me that I could have been one of those names. And no one would have remembered me because there was no video evidence to prove what really happened. You know, I have no doubt that the police would have said, oh, he was reaching for a gun. If I made in a sudden move, they would have said, he, well, he was reaching for a gun, or we thought he had a gun, blah, blah. And then, you know, my name wouldn't not be remembered by anybody. So I guess on the tech side, that's one benefit that we have of living in 2020 is that we're all armed with the ability to record what police are doing. And I think that's why a lot of these stories are coming out. It's just, um, it's just revealing, pulling the uh, sheet away from what's always been happening. So now everybody can see that this is, this is not right. It's not right.
1: You know, listen to that. And, and you know, I, my heart's like palpitating, you know, the, the fear that you're living under that constant fear and, and what could have happened. I mean, when, when that whole George Floyd thing went down, my first reaction was this could have been one of my son-in-law's. You know, no. it was, it really, it really hit home. You know, and just the other night, Ellie, when you were actually moving your bike in because of the protests and mm-hmm. you went downtown to go and see what was going on, Jessica and I were both freaking out that don't go there. And she was texting you to come back. We are your mother in law and your wife, and we were panicking, you know, and I, we can't even begin to understand that you guys are living under this constant threat. You know, this is no words to even process what you what you've gone through
2: you're
0: absolutely right
1: so jay tell us your experience
0: yeah so you know i think a large part of my life i was really unaware be it you know blissfully or sort of ignorantly unaware of how different you know i was to everyone around me i mean very much like ellie i grew up in a predominantly caucasian neighborhood and it didn't really register to me because it's all that i knew i knew that my skin was different from my friends you know, at an early age, but I had friends. You know, we went out and we played and everything was just fine. What I came to realize Rick, as I was getting older is that, you know, I would have all the rules that all my friends had to abide by. And then when I went home, I would have a second set of rules that my mom would let me know that I had to follow to make sure that I was safe. And I just did so, right? I, I knew how I should address, you know, an adult. Or if I saw a police officer, what I should do or how I should act when I'm in a store or in a public setting to make sure people don't view me in a specific light. That's how I spent majority of my life. And and I follow that, you know, it's just that's, that's what you do. You you pay attention to your parents and you be a good kid. And then sort of as time went on, I think the, the disparities became a little bit more prevalent. You know, I grew up, you know, we were. We certainly were not affluent as a family. You know, my mom was a single mom. She supported three kids and she did a great job at it. But I got to I got to see like how different, you know, my life was from a financial aspect from the rest of my friends. And that was largely based on opportunities that were presented to our family. And then taking it even a step further, you know, I remember one day my mom had a conversation with me because I had I had three best friends at the time. And she said, I'm I'm happy for you and it seems great, but just be on the lookout if you ever make one of your friends upset. They may say something to you that you don't want to hear. And I, and I thought, you know, I don't know what she's talking about. And that, that probably would never happen to me. These people understood me. They were my friends. And lo and behold, you know, one day I pissed off one of my friends while we were playing. Uh, I don't even know what. And then they dropped the N word and called to me and I was sort of taken aback. And it was the clearest indicator that there was a difference between me and them with that single word. And then from that point on, I think the rest of my K through 12 experience was really just feeling like another, like, like outside the the mainstream, you know, I spent a lot of my time in my high school years, sort of looking in the mirror and, and sort of thinking that my own appearance was not, you know, what somebody else would want, you know, I, I felt ugly, I used to spend the, my time in the in the mirror, daydreaming about what plastic surgery I was going to get done to my face to make me look you know, more Eurocentric, basically. And and then you sort of, you do that and your self-esteem is sort of broken down. And then as I started to take on more adult responsibilities, right, I got my my driver's license, I got a job, you know, I, I started making money for myself, the disparities became clear. You know, I mentioned this in my blog post, you know, I've been pulled over, you know, at least a dozen plus times before, never been given a speeding ticket, but, you know, I can tell you the multitude of reasons why living in a neighborhood that is predominantly Caucasian when you're one of the only African-American or people of color in the neighborhood makes you look suspicious to law enforcement officers. I've been pulled over because I was told my taillight was out and it wasn't. I've been pulled over because I was told that I was feeding and I wasn't. I've been pulled over because I, t- I was told that I simply looked nervous when I was driving, which I probably was, you know, with a with cop behind me. You know, I've I've had a car full of friends where we've all been forced out of the car and had the had the car searched with multiple dogs and all been you know searched for no reason you know just because and you know I think part of part of my experience and what I imagine is part of the black experience is you've got that sort of tough exterior you've got you know the, the resilience because you know this is something that is going to happen to you and this is something that you just need to you know sort of prepare yourself for and move on because you still have to live a life and you still need to be successful. You know, I could go on. I think there are a million other examples that I I could as well. But, you know, skipping forward into my adult life, I think the biggest thing that I've always realized is people make a concerted effort and have made a concerted effort in my life to make me feel like I'm, you know, just like everyone else. But the concept in the word microaggression has become something that is very... That have become very aware of in my later adult years now, because you see the differences, right? I've, I, you know, I'm vice president of technology. I've been working in IT for 16 years now, and what I found was, you know, not ever being a part of that small group. You know, everyone talks about the boys' club. You know, it applies to you if you are a woman. It applies to you if you are a person of color as well. That boys' club is filled with, you know, white men and And not looking like or sort of assimilating into that culture, you know, sets you outside of it and it caps the amount of success that you have. So you can just imagine how hard it is to sort of climb and attain uh, sort of what I have. So I'm rambling, but, you know, basically. No, 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 you're
1: not. It's very relevant.
0: Yeah. And and so, you know, basically this has been life. So. You know, the last part that I do want to mention is you know, when you think about finding a significant other, when you think about finding a spouse, like, or someone to, to love and who loves you, that has been a journey in itself. You know, I, I think because I didn't, I didn't necessarily know if I was cute or not until I went to college. <laughs> like it was, I remember someone wrote on my dry erase board outside the door, like, oh, I think you are cute. And that was the first time I'd ever heard it in my entire life from anyone in the world. <laughs> And it was, you know, it, it was wild. And you go through this whole sort of process where you doubt yourself and you have people who are not only fetishizing you because of the color of your skin and who you are, but also people who are judging you and wouldn't touch you with a 10 foot pole because of the same reason. And it's just, and it's very exhausting as well. Trying to figure out where you fit because you don't, you know, you come from a predominantly white neighborhood. So you don't act like what people think black people should act like. But at the same time, the very people from the place you come from also don't want you. So that has been, you know, a challenge of all, uh, as well. So, you know, I've, I've been very, very fortunate, very blessed to, to find someone who loves me. And, and, and I'm very happy with that. To sort of round it round it up and end it off, you know, when I, when I see what's happening in the world right now, You know, I'm really, it's, I'm really sad to say that it doesn't surprise me because elements of what's happening are things that I think both Ellie and I have experienced firsthand, you know, thank God, you know, not to the, you know, fullest extent that um, unfortunately many people who have experienced injustice through the legal system or directly from uh, police officers have, but things that are happening every day. So the thing that is, the thing that comforts me is that now I feel like people are paying attention. Now I feel like people can see it because you know, like you mentioned, technology is being videoed. It's it, it's not something that can be argued and they want to do something about it. But it's clear and it's nothing new to us. And there's a part of me that's very skeptical yet hopeful that there will be change. You know, is this gonna be just another hashtag that goes on for a couple of weeks, dissipates, and then things go back into to normal because it's less less effort to continue what we're doing? Or is this something that's gonna actually change? And I honestly don't know, but that's me. <laughs>
1: You said so much there, both of you. That's just you know. It, it, there's things like you said things like mental exhaustion, you know, from living like that, being hopeful but also sceptical of this is going to to last. How Ellie, that could have it wasn't filmed, so you could have just disappeared. I mean, how many haven't been seen? You both said things like now we can hear through technology, but to hear your story, to actually hear what about all the all the how many hundreds of thousands that haven't been seen and haven't been heard, and how do we keep this going? This awareness that is brewing at the moment and coming to a head? How do we take this and keep it in our conscious minds so that we can move into the future and finally start changing this? Before we dive into that sort of area, I want to just talk about the mental health aspect, the mental exhaustion. That. You must be living under because constant pressure. I mean, you guys know that I do mind brain research and I, and I look inside brains and and I look at what is happening when we are under constant stress and and I know that a, a person who's I mean, anxiety is a normal human experience. We all have it and it goes up and down. But being in a constant state where you're constantly on edge, where you have to be on edge all the time, like living in a perpetual state of on edge, that doesn't do good stuff in the brain. So, and for mental health, can we talk about that? Do you feel like you live like that? If you do. What does it feel like and how do you manage it?
2: That's an excellent question, Caroline. You know, I really appreciate you asking it. I feel like for me, I don't, you know, even though, you know, that the incident I previously described was really intense, it's not something that I've carried with me like a burden where I'm always looking over my back. And maybe that's just because of my personality or, you know, to, to not, not hold on to things. But at the same time. If there is this, you know, the concept oh, it does come to my mind from time to time that, you know, like, what is freedom? That's the freedom that white people can have to demand change in their government. It's not exactly the freedom that black people can have. And one I thought of mine in the past is, you know, people talking about, OK, well, look, if you've been pulled over unjustly, you know, oh, there's actually if you actually look at the law, there's things you can do to be able to contest, you know, a police officer who's trying to harass you, basically. But those tools, even though they may be legal, they're not really accessible to Black people because as soon as somebody who's Black is going to you know, say something that might upset a police officer, you never know what's going to happen next. So I would never try anything that I'm even legally entitled to, entitled to try half the time. So I guess that's, that's for me, that's the, the, the consciousness that I think of in terms of being nervous or it, being anxious about you know, what it means to be Black in a community that doesn't understand you or it doesn't understand your experience. And I feel like that, but, but that, that being said, you know, I've, I've been super blessed and I really feel bad for a lot of black people who live in underprivileged communities, who live in the projects, who live in the ghettos and have to get and get pulled over, you know, multiple times every year for no good reason, or in New York that the most horrible thing is, This whole stop and frisk policy in New York is like, forget about driving while black. It's just walking while black. And people are going to, and cops are going to come up to you and make you, make you basically strip search you in the middle of the street for nothing, you know? And now it's come out that, you know, the, you know, cops have come up on the record and said, yeah, where I was told by my superiors, black men, 14 to 20, those are the ones you need to stop, stop and frisk. And there's quota systems uh, around that. It's like, I'd feel like I was in a, you know, a zombie movie if I, if I, you know, lived in Brooklyn or something. That is, you know, and so I really feel for those the people that are in those circumstances where they really do have to look over their shoulder every five minutes because they don't know who's coming after them.
1: I mean, just to mention that you mentioned a quota system that there's a quota system for how many to frisk at a certain time. I mean, this is yeah. just that's just and that's dehumanizing. Jake, you moved to New York, and then COVID hit and. In- you moved back to LA now, but you were there, and you didn't. Okay, you couldn't get out. That really get out. But how did you feel? Did you in in New York? Is I mean, all over. I mean, I'm sure it's everywhere. That this is not just a New York thing. That's an everywhere thing.
0: So being in New York was obviously a brief experience, and I'll, and I'll certainly will be back. I mean, that's my my employer is is there. The thing that was different about New York is that there are probably I probably saw a cop a block. You know, it's very different. It's a very condensed city. You know, I, you know, you hear sirens on a daily basis all throughout the day. You know, there are, you know, folks who are homeless and, or, or individuals shouting in the middle of the street. It's just, it's a different culture and entirely. And, and I imagine, you know, just to be completely fair, that the individuals out there, like the, the cops and, and just regular people are constantly on edge. There's no way not to be. There's just so many noises and smells and, and things. It's, it's extremely overwhelming. So, you know, I I was not sort of subjected to any type of direct injustice while I was there. You know, even, you know, people around me would, would mention, oh, man, like that, that cop was staring at you and that person was staring at you. I think people look in fear, uh, not only because, you know, I love to walk around in hoodies and, and snapback caps all day, but just because I think everyone was on edge. And I think that really sort of leans into you know, what my overall life experience has been. I mean... I think, by and large, I want to give credit to my my mom because I think everything that she did, you know, from the day I was born and on, was set to give me as many tools as she possibly can, uh, could on her end to make sure I was set up for success. You know, my my legal name is what it is. I think because you know my mom wanted to make sure, and I know because we joked around about this, wanted to make sure that if my name showed up on our caller ID or on a uh, application that someone wouldn't immediately turn me away, you know, unjustifiably, And that's a real thing. You know, my, my, the way in which I speak, the way in which, you know, I sort of, I carry myself, especially in a professional setting, I learned from my mom, you know, and these are the things that have allowed me to be successful in life. I cannot tell you the number of times to this day I hear, Oh, you are so well-spoken. Oh, you are so eloquent. It's just, it it just, it just happens. And, And one end, like,
1: it's almost insulting though, but it's almost insulting in a way, isn't it?
0: It's almost, it's almost, it. because on one day, you know, I want to say thank you. Cause yes, I
1: am. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: And, and then, and then secondly, you want to say like, you know, what made you want to say that to me uh, as opposed to the many other people that I'm sure are around you who speak in a way that is just as eloquent as, as I, if not more. So, you know, they're, they're, those are the things that make you feel a little uncomfortable. But to Ellie's point, you know, I live, as far as I know, for now, one life. And I'm trying to have the best one that I possibly can. So you try not to hold on to these things so close to the chest on a daily basis. Like, I want to enjoy my life. I want to enjoy the sunshine, the things I have to do, the things that I've been fortunate enough to have. You know, my mom taught me at an early age to, to be be grateful for the blessings that I was given, but not everyone who had all the same opportunities that I had had. And, and of course, the people who did not as well. So, you know, I try to live in gratitude and just not have that stuff focus on me. But there have been situations where you feel that sense of dread immediately and you're either sort of... Quickly reminded of the color of your skin in a way where it's like, man, it's really like that or in in a way which terrifies you. I mean, I still get nervous uh, when I'm driving and there's a police cop behind me. It's instinctual now to think, you know, what reason now am I going to be the next person, you know, who I've seen on the news, you know, either be assaulted or murdered for reasons unknown in addition to that, you know, you go into a store and you, and you see someone, you know, glance at you in a way and only you in a way because they worry. And, and you, you have to think of what are the things that I can do to sort of diffuse the situation? Let me say a couple of words to this person and greet them so they know that I am safe. You know, once they hear my voice and they hear that I'm friendly, you know, uh, I've, I've seen plenty of times, you know, I'll, I'll see someone look me in the eye and if I'm not giving them a happy smile... You, you can tell though the, they're on, they're on edge. You know, you know, we went for a, a, a road trip a, a few days ago, just up into the mountains of terrible geography and we stopped to go and get coffee and I wanted to get an ice cream. And it was an area that was, you know, probably 100% white. <laughs> and when we walked out of the car, we were both wearing the same thing, you know, uh, sweatpants, hoodie and hat. Boy, that whole scene could have frozen and everyone stood and looked at me. Cause I think they were thinking that I was about to, pull out a sign and start protesting and looting the area that they were in right now. So that's just the life that you, that you live, you know, or that, that I live and that I think a lot of people.
1: But they didn't look at Jeffrey. Sorry to interrupt you. They didn't look at Jeffrey, but they looked at you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, no- I noticed immediately while people were talking, they all were talking and their eyes went straight to me and they just sort of followed me and everyone got really, really silent to see what it is that I was going to do. If anything, and they watched me until we got back in the car and and left. And that's just life. Now, there are plenty of situations where that doesn't happen. I think, you know, we're both lucky enough to live in an era where people who are our age, by and large, I want to say maybe, don't exhibit those behaviors, you know, on the outset. But internally, it's those little things that make you feel like you are an other. So that's just been life.
1: You said something, that both of you said things that have really touched me and I know touching everyone, but you said, this is life, but it shouldn't be life because what you've both described are situations where you being, va- you being different shouldn't be a value judgment, a statement that I often make. And it is, they, they, they are, they're making difference a value judgment. And you've both kind of indicated in different ways that almost your identity is being questioned, you know, who your value as a, as a person has been questioned through the color of your skin by just people looking at you the way that they or following the police following you. You're driving, you're going to work, you're going to dinner and, and you've been, you, there's, you feel on edge when there's a police car behind you, but I'm not going to feel that. And that's not, that's, that's a, people have made value judgments. So this is why you have to talk. so that, And this is why we have to share your stories, because we've got to keep this in conscious awareness. Because you guys know that the work that I do with the brain, that if something is in the non-conscious mind, you can't change it. And that's what white privileged people have to do. We have to bring into consciousness what we don't even think is there. Because so many times we'll think, oh, I'm not racist. I've got two African-American son-in-laws and whatever. But there's stuff. I grew up in apartheid South Africa. When I was a little girl, there was black and white toilets, black and white beaches, there were signs. That's what I grew up with. And I came against that system as a young adult and worked in those, as you know, I worked in those systems for 25 years trying to change the systems and trying to, but I saw the results of racial discrimination. I saw what it did to communities. And, you know, now, and I come to America and I'm seeing exactly the same thing. It's just like, it's more, you said earlier on, pass, it's more like passive aggressive, but it's not as, it's passive aggressive constantly, but, and then there's these explosions that are constantly happening and, you know, that's got to change. It's time. And and, and unless something's conscious, and that's why I'm so grateful for this season, which has made us aware. I'm grateful for technology. I'm grateful that we can talk. I'm grateful that you two can can dig down deep like you are and bring up very painful experiences. We need to hear everyone's stories. We need to keep it in our conscious mind because science shows that only when something is conscious, when you bring that thought that's physically structured into your brain, when you bring that into your conscious awareness, you can then change it. And there's been times when my own four children, and you married to two of them, have said, hey, mom, that's a racist statement. I didn't even know. You know, and that's what we have to do. If I think of myself and everyone who's white, who's listening to this, we need to not just think consciously. Yes, consciously you may think you're not being racist, but what is deep down inside of you? What are the cultural, structural, societal norms that you've grown up with that are imprinted in in your psyche? Those need to come up and we need to dismantle those one at a time. And we can't do that if we're not conscious, if we're not listening. With empathy,
2: yeah, I think that's a great point. We have to listen, but sometimes the first part of listening is asking the question because most people are not comfortable talking about the experience they've had. In fact, that like, what I just told you about being arrested at point, Most of my friends don't know about that. It's not like oh, I'm afraid to tell anybody. It's that partially I'm not. It's not on my consciousness all the time. And technically, I don't want you know, I'm, I don't want to make people feel like I'm you know behaving like I'm a victim. You know, because I don't see myself as a victim personally, but when you ask me, well, then now I'm gonna bring it up. We're in this environment where, of course, some of my then I'm gonna bring it up because it needs to be said. And so I think people need to ask more questions who do not have who don't understand, they need to ask the questions. And people who do understand need to speak out about their experiences and have the courage to be like, yeah, this happened to me. It's not just an outlier, it's not just a random act of violence, it is a way of life. And and now you need to know that it didn't just happen on TV. That your your son-in-law experienced this, your friend, your classmate, your brother, that guy that that you knew for years that was just like you, but he's black. Well, he's not just like you because he has totally different experience that you had no idea about. And so I think that's we need to get comfortable with that. I was going to sort of mirror that and, and simply say, you know what we what we see in the world right now,
0: you know, isn't just you know people of color, black people, and allies you know, getting enraged simply because of George Floyd. It's because of years of watching people, you know, be murdered unjustly and going peacefully about, you know, reposting a hashtag and a photo and bringing awareness and hoping for justice and it not coming again and again and again. And now you've got people who are just like, I'm tired of talking about this with you. I'm tired of trying to explain it peacefully. I'm tired of you telling me that I'm not, you know, raising my voice or protesting in the correct way, I'm upset and you're going to have to hear that. So I think, you know, there there definitely needs to be some understanding from people who not only are not aware of what it is that's going on because their privilege or their, or their own experience has allowed them to, you know, to not have to experience it, you know, Taking the time to understand what that difference is and then also taking the time to try and empathize with people who are, you know, who have lived this experience for their entire life and and, and try and recognize how, how they feel and sort of take it from there. Because, you know, at, at this point, you know, we, we sort of popped the top. And, and the state of the world is what it is. And, you know, we're looking for some justice. And we're looking for some real change. But that dialogue, you know, when, when we do have an opportunity to have it really needs to be one of, you know, listening, you know, to people who have these grievances and, and have this hurt inside them and, and try to understand it from their perspective
1: very good both of what you've both said is incredibly good and you know what when you think about you pop the lid in terms of the brain and the mind thoughts are real so the thoughts that i've grown up with that have been imprinted the, the experiences that you've had that have been and these years of racial injustice and not just as you say it's not just george floyd and, and these few people we've mentioned it's it's years and years that these are and this is coming through the dna this is this is generational this is epigenetic thoughts are real you can't push them down they have a volcanic nature and at some point they will explode so we 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 are seeing the pain of generations exploding. And we are in a you two both being tech MIT gurus, literally. This is actually an ideal age that we live in to spread this and to keep this thing alive. We have a, a distinct advantage in this time now to make a difference because there is a shift. Culturally, there is a shift in awareness with the younger generation. There's a definite change, there's much more of an awareness, but there's also the opportunity to keep it alive, to keep the flame burning like the Olympic flame keeps burning. We also can use the COVID example. How quickly did the pandemic take over the world and the whole of humanity for the first time in history were globally facing the same common enemy over literally within a few days. So if, if 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 we can take the virus as an example, how quickly humanity, all of humanity had this focus on one issue, why can we not do the same thing with this? It's in our consciousness. We can just as quickly make people aware and work towards solutions in exactly the same way that we're working towards solutions to solve the COVID crisis. This is a crisis that has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of, of history that we can change. So we need to Keep this thing going, like the virus, to change it, to find the solution, the antibody, the the, the way through. I have to bring science in. I'm sorry, boys, you know that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> the way my brain goes, but I mean, it's it's true with between technology and and the concept of the virus. We we we've seen evidence that overnight you can get global attention on something. Over overnight you can get all of humanity focused on something and work towards solutions. How do we leverage that?
2: No, I think one thing that I feel is important is. To not be reactionary, to be honest, because I feel like when we're in an environment where we're reactionary, we're not putting our best foot forward because the situation that we're reacting to or has the first move advantage already. And so I think one of the one of the reasons that movements like the Civil Rights Movement, you know, and the movement of nonviolence and civil disobedience was so successful is because in that time period. People, obviously black, black men were dying all, all over just like they are now, but they didn't say, oh, a Black man died. This is horrible. We need to go protest it. They they took a step back and said, okay, this is happening. This is not just a flashpoint that just happened last week. This is happening all the time. It's a continuum of racism and violence. And yeah, it's a pattern. It's it's, it's a constant thing. Instead of trying to pick at one thing or another, instead of trying to respond to one act of violence or another, let's look focus on systemic situations and let's have the first mover advantage, uh, which is what they did with the SCLC and that their their coalition of religious leaders who decided, okay, we're going to put our bodies on the line and we're instead of us being triggered by the police, we're going to trigger them. We're going to uh, plan these protests not around, not right after somebody got attacked, but we're going to plan them on our time, on our on our grounds, and we're going to go out and force the police to respond to us in a way that makes it abundantly clear that we are in the right. So when they did that, and, you know, and everybody, you know, even if you weren't alive at that time, you know, we've seen in school, the pictures of police with fire hoses and dogs beating up peaceful protesters, there is no, there is impossible to ignore what was happening. And that's what allowed the segregation to really become so unpopular that even the, the, the KKK didn't want to do it anymore. So that's just the thought that I've had for a while of like, how, how can we, you know, instead of always be reactionary, you know, which it's hard to be organized when you're reactionary, but when you're, when you create a plan that's based on the situation and then execute that plan, then, then the other side has to react and they are more likely to, to wither and, and fall because they can't, can't withstand that.
1: That's brilliant. So what you're talking about is being proactive and proactively keeping this, not just waiting for this to die down and these protests to die down and then we do nothing until the next explosion. And then there's another.
2: Well, that's what I'm afraid of. And that's what I'm afraid of. Is, yeah. I mean, I, I hope that, you know, the riots and the looting, you know, calm down. I mean, like most people, but, but as far as a peaceful protests, I wouldn't be surprised if those calm down too. And and frankly, we go back to the situation where, you know, so-called allies are more focused on you know, dancing with the stars or what the latest pop star is doing again. You know, I, I, so, so that's why I feel like that we have to turn, we have to reorient our mindset into how we deal with this situation and make it be a proactive instead of reactive thing.
1: I love that. I love that you say that we should have planned peaceful protests. We should follow the models that have worked and we need to keep it in the public conscious mind constantly that this doesn't keep continue. You have to keep those same patterns, proactive patterns running.
2: Yeah. And the idea that, you know, I think we have also to defeat the idea that, that it's not just, you know, there's this common idea about people who don't, from people who don't know, understand that black experience that, oh, it's just, you know, there's a few bad cops, you know, a bad apple did this. He's got, he got arrested. He got fired. He, you know, whatever. The problem solved. You know, oh, you know, yeah, I'm certainly glad that in, in very quick time compared to other cases that the officer has been, the old officer has been fired and the one officer has been charged with murder. That's great. But that's not the, sol- <laughs> that's not the solution. That's why people are still protesting. And unfortunately, people are taking that to a, a much more violent level because that's not what we're here it's a
1: band-aid it's a band-aid on a on a wound that is still festering we've got to address the cause of the wound
2: it really is it really is so yeah, that's my thought on
1: that while learning mind management techniques is vital to cleaning up your mental mess there are some other things you can do to help aid your healing journey one thing you can do is incorporate cbd products Recently, I have been feeling high levels of anxiety due to the current crisis and trying to finish a book on a tight deadline. So I knew I needed some extra help on managing stress and worry. And that's why I use Feels Premium CBD. Feels naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain and sleeplessness and has really made the world of difference in my life during this extra stressful time. I love how easy Feels is. You just place a few drops of Feels under your tongue and feel the difference within minutes. New to CBD, Feels offers a free CBD hotline to help guide your personal experience. Join the Feels community to get Feels delivered to your door every month. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel at any time. Feels has me feeling my best every day and it can help you too. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash leaf, and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash leaf to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash leaf. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. Both of you have written incredible blogs. I've actually got them printed out here because I wanted to make some comments and ask some questions about them. But I recommend that all the viewers go to my website, drleaf.com and go and look at the blogs that both Jay and Ellie have written. They are amazing. And I wanted to actually ask you some questions about you know, some of the things that you've, you've both said in your blogs. But before we do, Jay, did you want to say anything in terms of the proactive idea or anything in terms of what Ellie's just said?
0: The first thing that I wanted to say, and I want to take my time with this so I say it correctly, is, you know, when when everything first started when it came to the protests, which turned into, you know, very aggressive, sometimes violent protests, which sort of evolved into looting. And now, you know, we've got the police sort of you know, fighting back, essentially, when it comes to uh, protesters was, you know, I had the same reaction, which was, oh, there's no way that we're going to solve this problem if we are out here breaking things down and, and looting and doing, you know, this, you know, uh, and, and that that's, that's not the way, you know, and then it was through sort of continuing to see the posts, you know, where you got, you know, uh, to get the reasoning why that I, I, I started to open my mind up a bit now I'm not necessarily advocating for that type of, of behavior on a, on a regular basis. What I am trying to say is I understand why it is people have gotten so upset I understand how things could escalate to that. And then if you look at other nations, other cultures, other countries, I mean, we all love going to Paris and and in France. And when the people there want to get something done, they protest and things, you know, windows get broken, you know, some stores may get vandalized and things get taken and the government pays attention and they make the. And they make a change because it see, it appears, you know, of course, there's a civil way to go about doing all things, but there's a certain time where, you know, sitting down and having a meeting and waiting for someone to take what you're saying, you know, seriously, you know, it, it feels like it's hitting deaf ears and it feels like it's taking too long. So, you know, what's the quickest way to get a bunch of people's attention when you're in a room, break something, everyone's going to turn around to see what the heck happened. So I, I understand it is what I, what I will say. But I do think in the long run, you know, th- things are gonna have to happen twofold. I agree with Ellie. You know what we do is, you know, as a Black community and and as al- as allies of uh, the Black community, people of color, is going to be to remain consistent and organized. Listen, there are a lot of us who became overnight activists when it came to this specific issue where we hadn't been speaking about this. And I think we all three, listen, we have lived our lives and, and 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 done what we could, and we feel like we've been good people. But we certainly weren't posting about this issue, which was absolutely going on beforehand. And I think that's a fair assessment. I, I judge myself against the exact same thing, you know, because a part of you, yeah, part of you, you know, part of it is out of sight on my mind. And, and the other part is what I went back to saying before was I want to live a good life. Like I, I you know, I want to be happy and do I personally feel like I want to become a lifelong activist? And I don't know if, if, I, if I have that answer. But I do think if this problem is going to be solved, it's going to have to remain at the forefront of people's minds and remain consistent. You know, whether you want to go and have a peaceful protest, whether you want to you know throw your dollars at a solution, or whether you want to do what we're doing right now by you know having those conversations with, uh, with people so they can become more aware of your mindset and become allies, or just become aware of some of their situations they understand a bit more. That's what we can do. So I think the the solution to this is not going to happen overnight. When these protests end, and they will at some point, and we go back to our lives, there will still be an issue with prejudice and discrimination and injustice in the United States and in the world. So I think, you know, really what we're going to have to do is, is make a plan long term. But what I am happy about is I have friends and colleagues who simply are, are telling you that they had no idea that this is my experience after they read my article. I'm sure the same thing will happen to Ellie if it has not with his article. And just making people aware. So when they look at a, a situation, you know, through the, the glasses that they've been wearing their entire life, that they can look at it and go, well, maybe this is not what his experience is. You know, perhaps that can can, you know, be a, a start for them to to sort of make a change in the future. So that's what I'm hopeful for at least, but it'll take much more than that, you know, and I don't want anyone to sort of quote me and saying like, let's just wait and, and, and be slow about it, but I definitely think it's going to be a long-term process.
1: Well, anything, any change starts, we all know that. I mean, change is small little steps at a time, but cumulatively over time, huge differences can happen. And just from a scientific angle, I can tell you that even in a three-week period, you can make major changes in your brain. So we, you know, we could, I mean, I I, right now, I'm going to throw a challenge out there to all my white, my white friends and family and whoever's white out there, I'm, I'm, going to put up a whole series of educational posts teaching people how to dig down into your non-conscious mind and to actually do the hard work of seeing what non-conscious racist thoughts and patterns you actually have and then pulling those to the surface and doing the hard work of dismantling them and actually... Reconceptualizing re- them into the, into the right way of thinking. I mean, this applies to all the work that I do with mental health. This is a toxic mindset. Racism is a toxic mindset and it is causing brain damage. So if you've got that inside of you and you think you're not racist, but you're white, you are privileged and you may not be consciously racist, but you are white. So you can walk into a store and, and like Jeffrey Jay walked into a store and Jeffrey's white and Jay's and Jay's black and they looked at Jay. That is a mindset that we have to dismantle. We have to pull that up and we have to do that hard work and white privilege, we don't want to do that. It's time for us to start doing that. So I'm going to put a challenge out there. I'm going to give you the tools to be able to do that. Everything I teach on my page is about dealing with our toxic issues, dealing with our trauma. And this is a toxic trauma. And let me tell you from a scientist's point of view, and I do this research, I'm a brain scientist, that when we have a toxic thought, we are damaging our brain. So us not dealing with this stuff is actually causing a toxic damage in our brain. You can't sit on the bylines. You either are anti-racism or you are for racism. So if you're not doing anything anti this toxic mindset, you actually have a toxic damaged brain because you're just sitting on the fence. You can't be a bystander that is causing brain damage. So don't think you're not affected. Every person who is not operating as a decent human being, reaching out there and valuing every human for who they are and not seeing differences of value judgment, you are causing brain damage in your brain. And this is not acceptable. This is not something that we can keep on perpetuating through the generations. This is something that we can proactively do. And that's something within three weeks I've shown with my research and neuroplasticity, and there's many other areas, scientists that research in this field of neuroplasticity, but you can change a mindset. And when we change our mindsets, if you do collectively, if there's a whole, if there's thousands of us, and I challenge you, I have thousands of people that are listening to this and watching this now. We can get this get this video going viral. I challenge this thousands to become hundreds of thousands to become millions to change your mindsets because as we change our mindsets collectively as we do the work we come together and then we can have these discussions but we don't have to wait oh this is such a hopeless thing you can start today by doing starting to change your mind you can start today by starting to listen to the stories you can go and read Ellie and Jay's blogs you can go and see what's going on out there in social media you can dig down deep if you're defensive, if you're feeling defensive, if you feeling that you have to justify what you're hearing now and getting angry with what I'm saying, just the mere fact that you're justifying shows you that you've got some sort of issue there that you need to deal with. We're talking about human lives here. My son-in-laws walk into a shop and they get targeted. That is not acceptable. That is something that is sick in society. And we can change that. We don't, as, and on top of all the other big changes that will be made, it starts first with a thought. Whatever a person is doing, whatever action they're performing, whatever glance they throw in the direction of my son-in-laws has come from a thought that they have first built, that has come from a thinking process that has been built through the culture and the environment. And when we look at ourselves individually, we can start changing that. So that's my challenge to all of you out there. And we will help you through this challenge. I don't know if you boys want to comment on what I've just said.
2: Yeah, I just want to say, no, I totally agree with that. And one thing I was thinking of is, you know, one of my hobbies and passions is sailing, which is, you know, ironically something that only only mostly white people do. But the bottom line is that, you know, the I really have understood or understand more and more about your your analysis of the brain. And it does seem to me like it is a sailing ship in that you're out on the ocean. There's you're always moving somewhere. Your brain's always changing. There's no, you can't, you can't drop anchor in the middle of the ocean. Your brain's going one direction, it's going another. And when it comes to this issue of racism, there is no neutral ground. There is no anchor. You're either, if you're at the helm, you can't not be at the helm. You can't say, oh, I'm not racist. But if you're not directing your ship towards, against racism, then your ship's going to drift and it's going to, it's going to end up in, in, in an environment where you're, you can call it apathy or ignorance or whatever. It's still supporting racism. So you are. So we could non-consciously support it, and I, that's not to say I'm, I'm not. And I don't want to, this message to be seen like, oh, well, look, white pe- people should feel guilty for being white. That's, that's absolutely wrong. It's not. Same or like this is all your fault. It's just being conscious of who you are and, and how the, the world is operating. Be conscious and, and dig deep into yourself to understand how you can do better. And the same thing for me as well, because I, to be honest, no matter what skin color you are, you can have biases against people. You can have biases against yourself, against your own skin color. And, and sometimes, you know, I, I make prejudgments against people because they, you know, look like they might be the stereotypical thug, to be honest, you know? And so I have to, I have to change that on myself to, to respect people and actually try to understand them before I make a value judgment. So I think that's something we can all learn from, you know, no matter what color you are.
1: Oh, that's, that's excellent. Yeah. Jay, you want to say anything? Uh, yeah,
0: I, I think I would, I would just say, you know, prejudice is, is, prejudice is something that is going to exist forever. I mean, you, you, you look at something and you will make a judgment on it. It's how we, it's how we operate in the world. It's how we sort of, you know, try to make sense of of the world around us at all times You know, I think it's what we do in those moments when we're making quick judgments that are going to have an impact on how others are treated and how how others feel in in the world. And I think that's a hard thing to do because the first thing that you need to do as an individual is look internally and and say to yourself, what are the areas in which I'm making quick assumptions about? You know, what are the areas in which I assume someone's behavior when I don't have any personal experience on it or with this type of individual? I can't tell you the number of times that I became the exception to the rule for people whose family had never had a Black person in their house before or who had a Black friend before. And then their whole entire world opened up when it came to that. You know, and and it's... It's sad to say that, you know, those are the sort of things that need to happen, but I feel like people need to expand their horizons and their minds and go and experience and and get to know the fact that, you know, folks, you know, aren't exactly what you think of what they are in their mind. You know, another example, you know, I I went to prom with a girl whose grandfather was extremely racist. She told me ahead of time and, you know, everything that happened uh, thereafter, you know, was a clear indicator. You know, I took her to her prom and he wouldn't get out of the car when we were taking photos with the group of i think 30 other people when our when the pictures went up she told me that you know he he cut out my portion of the picture and and covered it uh, with another uh, frame yeah and and that's just something that you know as i was 16 at the time that you know i just had to sort of deal with but there was one day where he came over her house while i was there And she asked me if I wanted to leave and I just didn't feel like it. And he came in and we had a conversation and I think we talked about sports, which I know nothing about. And, you know, we had a civil conversation and then I ran into him again and we had a civil conversation. And then, you know, after a a while we were, we were having friendly conversations and it was fine. So I think it it works, it works both ways. You know, I, I became the exception to the rule for him. Because not only I wasn't looking at him as an uh, an immediate aggressor who I needed to sort of prove a point to, and he eventually, you know, wore down you know, his preconceived notions about who I was based off the color of my skin. Now every situation isn't going to be like that, but what I am saying is that it is proof that if you put yourself in situations, your mind may change about an individual in the end.
1: I love that. So the what you said there was key was the conversation. So once you'd gone past the bias of the color and you got into conversation, it changed things. So this is the importance of conversation because if you haven't had, I mean, how many times, as you already said earlier as well, do we make an assumption about someone then we talk to them and realize, oh my gosh, I was so wrong, you know? And so that's what we need is that's another pattern that we can bring in to continue this. Once things calm, calm down is we could have conversation challenges where we get people talking all kinds of ways and manners of, 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 getting conversations going between different races that are sit and have a coffee, community, whatever the coffee conversation, whatever, as well as the, the, the protests that are peaceful. So there are some very basic things that can be done besides working on our own mind, conversations, peaceful protests. These can make a difference and they're doable.
0: In respect, I mean, out of respecting each other, respecting the fact that someone else may have a, a you know a completely different opinion, and hearing them out, and being open to the fact that you just possibly may be wrong or misguided in your thought, or. That simply may just be their experience, and sort of going from there. I think it takes a very brave person to sit in the room. I don't know how many many black people would be willing to sit in a room full of people who identify as racist, and I don't know how many you know white people who have inherent biases against people of color or black people would feel comfortable. One, identifying that they were those people to begin with, and then two, sitting in the room with those individuals and having a meeting, uh, having a meeting of the minds. I take I think it takes a special type of person, but those are the types of people that we need. To make this conversation
2: happen. Oh, no, that's a really fast, a really cool story you just told. And I, yeah, obviously, I had no idea about that either. But I mean, I mean, I'm just, you're absolutely right. It takes that willingness to be uncomfortable for a good cause. And, you know, whether it is getting, you know, picketing or whether it is talking to someone who already has a notion that you're lower than them, I mean, that's just really cool that you did that. And like you said, even as a teenager, no, I'm going to talk to him, I'm going to try to get to know him. Me that just reminds me of a story that I think everybody should look up, which is this black man called Daryl Davis, who who's now become well known for attending KKK rallies and befriending these racist members. And you know, and up to 2017, he he convinced over 200 KKK members to keep the ropes just by talking to them. You know, getting to know them, befriending them, showing them that he's not the enemy. He's made so much change as one person. So, and I think we all have that potential to, to make a difference by being willing to be uncomfortable, have uncomfortable conversations, you know. Yeah. And I wanna and I and I just want to throw in two points. Sorry, we're
0: we're we're going off on tangent. Two things because the first thing that someone I'm sure who heard my story and heard what you just said is going to say is it's not my responsibility to make someone who has a prejudice against me more comfortable with me being around them. And that is that is a that is a valid point to make. You know, how why is it my job to have to do that? Someone should be able to, you know, meet me halfway or simply just not have those thoughts at all. And and and, and that's also a valid point. All I'm um, saying is if you are an individual who is willing enough to, to take that step that is one single path in which the conversation could start an alternate path could be being in the position of the person who have the who has the biases and making your own self uncomfortable and challenging your own beliefs about you know individuals who may have prejudices prejudices about and and, and making the effort and, and doing the work as well so I I just wanted to throw that out there because I know if I was listening to this I would say well hell it's not my job uh, so yeah
1: and you raised two very valid points. we can do the work ourselves and yes, it may not be our job, but as humans we, we need to start talking. we need to have conversations and I think that if, if what make may make it easier to have a conversation when you think, hey, it's not my job to convince you. no, it's not your job to convince you and to have expectations. I, I agree with what you were saying then how people will feel that. but at the same time is if we agree to disagree, but we have a conversation about agreeing to disagree and finding but there's probably something we can dis- can agree on so we're not coming in I'm not trying to convince you you're not trying to convince me I just see you as another human can we see each other as as humans and, and, and have a conversation, then there's, you know, what you choose to do with that afterwards is entirely up to you. You can walk away more racist or less racist or more angry or less angry. But at the end of the day, it's a choice that you have to make, bearing in mind that if you are constantly angry towards other people, even if they don't change that anger that you keep in you is damaging you, you know, so it's right. damaging the, the, the victim and the victimized in, in that situation. So conversation. So we could literally start a challenge of. Have a conversation. You know, get get uncomfortable. Be prepared to agree to disagree. You know, we could we could get a campaign going where people communicate and start talking.
2: Yeah, me too, for sure. And I feel like it's something that I've thought about for a long time. To be honest, So I'm glad that you guys are bringing it up. It's so essential to to peace and unity. And it just reminds me of the, the fact that this goes back to you know what it means to be. To be human and what it means to be, you know, to make progress in your own mind and your own spirit. You know, in terms of what you've shared with your audience regarding how they change your mind or how they change themselves physically and health-wise, it requires you to be to be uncomfortable. So that you know, any tri- almost any triumph requires you to be uncomfortable. But then once you get to the other side, you're so glad you did it. Just like you know, we were talking about you know Wim Hof and that method, and all of that. You know, you have to reading all that. And at first it's kind of weird at first and you feel like you're out of place, uncomfortable, but then, you know, you get over that hump and you're like, I achieved something out of this. This is awesome. Let me do it. Let me do it again. You know, even, I'm so, I mean, I'm sure for Jay, when he, you know, the reason he's told the story is because something good came out of it. And and that's why we're all here, right? We want something good to come out of the, the difficult times that we have with each other.
1: I love that. And it, we, we need you. It's like another analogy is a surgeon. They have to, I've got so many surgeon friends and they'll always, they always say to me, you have to cut you up to fix you. So you have to go through the pain to cut you up, fix you up. And then you've got to go through the healing. And what we've created is a culture of, I don't want to feel pain. Just take a tablet, take it away, push it down. And then things get, keep hidden. And then when things are hidden, that's, that's, that's the societal breakdown as well. It's not just in it's racism. It's in mental health in general. It's just. You got to get a label, get a drug, and push it away. But it's it's all part of being a human. We've got to embrace depression and anxiety and and the mental health things that come. I mean, that's depressing what what you both have experienced. It's anxiety provoking what you've experienced. To so you to have someone who you, who doesn't want you in their home, or someone who's driving behind you, or someone who looks at you funny because of your color of your skin, that creates a level of anxiety. But if we're talking about it, as you say, if we go through the pain. If we do that surgery, we'll get through the other side. We'll get through the healing. So what we have to do is keep the pain in the forefront. We have to keep the pain in the forefront.
0: Yeah. I think a challenge that I would I would love to sort of give to people who are looking at, you know, the protests and the things that are happening in the world right now and they're going, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe these these people, these thugs or are, are, are not are, are doing these things out in the streets. You know, think of something that would happen in your life that would bring you to a point that would make you angry enough where you would want to break something, okay? You know, if you lost a loved one or if if you felt as though, you know, some injustice had, you know, sort of befallen you or someone that you love and there was nothing that you could possibly do to change that and, and what happened was sort of irreversible. You know, think of that and, and and try and understand, you know, just like we just mentioned, what would bring someone out there to do these exact same things? What would bring you to sort of break, you know, or, uh, break a glass or go and challenge a police officer or go and shout at the top of your lungs that injustice is happening and change needed to happen now? Uh, I think that would be the challenge that I would uh, I would I would throw out to people, because if you think about it like that you know, you think, okay, you know, if it it could be me in any scenario, if any scenario, you know, and for me, the things that, you know, would always bring me up in arms would be if something happened to my husband, or if something happened to my mom, you know, my family, you know, what are the things that would sort of drive me up to mania? And those would be the things. So I understand. and, and, And I really sort of implore people to do the same thing. And just sort of to go back to what Ellie said about the individual who was, you know, went to KKK rallies. I think I think we all must realize, and this sounds incredibly cheesy, that like at at our core, we all just want to live a good life. We all just want to pay our bills and go on va- go on a vacation, have food on the table, laugh with our loved ones, and live a good life. I think no matter what you know, socioeconomic background you come from, no matter what color of your skin, you just want to live a good life. And, and I think that's why it's so easy to find commonality with uh, people of any race or kind. So once you take away these invisible, make believe barriers that you feel as though separate you from another person, even your traumas, which may be very real and very concrete, you will find at the core that we are very similar. So I feel like if you challenge yourself to put yourself in a position where you can have these conversations and be a little uncomfortable and get a little scraped up like you mentioned, Dr. Lee, then you know what's going to come out of it is like, oh, like these people are way more common to me than I thought.
1: You could call me mom. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, finally, I finally I'm <laughs> going to the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: that that was that was amazing what both of you just said you know, two Mm -hmm. separate conversations was uh, Mm -hmm. two separate points that you've made is, is, is so important because you're stressing the, the, Two things, you're stressing empathy, which is so much part of our humanity. And does uh, the, the, from once again, brain science research, we, we have not got wiring in our brain for hatred. There's no, there's no wiring in our brain for racism, for toxic. We are wired literally wired for love. We all are neurotransmitters, our circuits, we geared towards empathy and towards love. So when we, when we operate, that's, what, as you say, that's our most fundamental need as humans is every movie, every story. It's always about the, Love at the end of the day. The the love story that breaks through the the trauma, the you know, that's what really draws us in. So it, it's true. We have to. We all know that. It's not brain, it's not brain science. We all know that. And so to uh, to empathize, to to develop our empathy, we kind of have stamped out a little bit of empathy is natural. Our individualistic lifestyles and our almost narcissistic lifestyles have have kind of stamped that out. Where we're not putting ourselves in other people's shoes. And, and interesting research shows that when you're in a bad place, like racism has put black people in a bad place, reaching out and 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 reaching out and trying to have these conversations, like you did with your from partner's grandfather. Was you going in your case of Almost brokenness. You reached out, and research shows that when you do, when you reach out from a place of brokenness and you help others, you improve your own healing and functionality by up to sixty-eight percent. So, if we have us all doing the mind work, it starts. It's the mind. Your decision to to do what you did that day, to do what you've done. To to. It's all driven initially by what are you thinking? How you? It's driven by the thoughts that you're thinking. So, if we get our minds changed, we can start changing how those things, how we move forward with those things. So, empathy and is a is a huge. Problem. Part of it and take away those invisible barriers. So, I, I love what you both said. I mean, just every, everything is just incredible.
2: One, one real quick thing one thing that I do think that's been that I've really loved what I've seen the last few days is you know, aside from all the videos of protesters and rioters attacking police, there have been the videos of protesters going coming up to police line and asking the police to kneel. Yes, and saying, and saying Hey, look, you know, having personal conversations with the police or whoever the head is there and saying, Hey, we will kneel if you will kneel if you kneel police we will actually go home and that's happened in multiple cities where police have actually gotten down on their knee on the line with with the protesters and then the protesters went home i mean you know in the midst of all this craziness there's a beauty that can be replicated and set as an example of how to treat each other and I think that that's something we can hold on to and possibly use as a driving force for for, for real change, for understanding each other, and for, for bringing peace.
1: Mm, I love that. That's incredible. Well, before we, I mean, there's so much more we can discuss, but I would like to raise something that I think is a very relevant topic, and and you've both kind of touched on it in your in your blogs, but. Why do we have to focus at this time on Black Lives Matter? We all agree that all lives matter. Our whole conversation has been also referring to the fact that obviously every human love, et cetera, and connection and take away those invisible barriers and and honoring and respecting all the different colors and, and bias goes both ways and opportunists occur in every culture. That's not the issue. The issue this time is Black Lives Matter. The best analogy I heard this week, and then I'm going to hand it over to you. And there's been so many. The the one I'd like that helped me understand it the best or explain it the best was if there's a fire in the street and the fire engine comes along because one of the houses is on fire, the fire engine comes along and puts the fire out on that house. It doesn't mean that all the other houses don't matter, but it means that at that moment, that house is on fire. And that's what we have at the moment. At this moment, Black lives are on fire and we have to focus on that. And then we can, as, as the other houses come on fire, we can deal with those. But at this moment now, we need to deal with a house that's been on fire for too long and it's time to put that fire out.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, it, it's funny because I was going to use an analogy as well that I sort of more identify with. You know, everyone at some point in their lives have been to the emergency room. And when you go to the emergency room, everyone is there because they have an issue, right? Maybe you have a toothache or you've got a temperature. You know, your arm's in a cast and, or, and and there's some sort of issue. You are in need as well. Everyone there is in a need at the moment. But then someone comes bust in the door and they're bleeding and they collapse on the ground. And then you see the people from behind the emergency room rush out and take them back. All of a sudden, you who've been sitting in line for two hours now, you know, they're skipping ahead of you. That is what I think about when I think of this issue. It is an emergent issue, and it is something that everyone needs to pay attention to. It's not negating the fact that you, too, may have problems. We all have problems. We all have things that we have to deal with. That this It's that this is a serious issue that is not being solved that needs immediate attention from people. So, yes, absolutely Black Lives Matter. And we say it because we feel as though they have not been honored in the way that they should be, in the way that other lives have been, and it's an emergent crisis.
1: Okay, that's my new favorite analogy. That's a, a an excellent analogy. It's a great
2: one. It's a great one. Yeah, sure.
1: yeah. That yeah. really, really hones in on the issue.
2: Yeah, I think that the semantics of that has been really overplayed to the detriment of us all. But specifically, all lives matter. We all agree that all lives matter. This is so. It's so ridiculous to have a have a debate about that. We don't even need to talk about that. It's talking about like you both. Of you just said what's the emergent issue? And I do feel like you know, one group that's having a lot of challenges is the Christian community. You know, they, you know, for a lot of them, they don't understand what what many Black people have to deal with, especially even the local community and, you know, communities that are pre- predominantly white. They think, look, you know, we love, you know, God is love and we love all of you. So why are you, why are you hate us? Why, why, why are you attacking? Why are you doing all this? You know, or why should we focus on Black Lives Matter? We thought everything's cool. But I think even in the Christian faith, there's specific examples that reflect what the, the concept that of focusing on the black struggle. And I know some of them that we've discussed recently were, you know, you know, the parables of Jesus, you know, losing one sheep out of a hundred or the parable of, you know, a shepherd losing one sheep out of a hundred, you know, he spends all day and all night finding that sheep. And when he finds it, he's like the happiest man in the world or the prodigal son where the son goes away, gets involved in all sorts of stuff and Liz basically almost, you know, almost dies and then comes back years later and the father is so happy, so cheerful, throws a party for this this kid who went and ruined his life and the son who stayed home and did everything which he was told and was so great. It's so like, you know, upset and like, you know, feels so jealous. It's this, but it's not about, you know, we need to focus on where the problem is. And now if I identify the problem, let's, Solve it together.
1: I agree with you. And in terms of the church, we, the church needs to wake up and also read the history, yeah. the structural racism that's actually wired into a lot of the church history in in the United States and across the world. But there's there's, there's some really really good books out there that will explain that 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 this is a that there was a, there's a lot wrong that has just come through and been accepted and not questioned.
2: Yeah, I mean, like for example, like the, you know, everybody idolizes lionizes Lamar the King now, but back when he was doing his thing. Most churches were opposed to them. Even many black churches did not want to be involved in civil disobedience. And, you, know, you know, the white churches weren't even were on the other side of that many times. So, so uh, the idea that somehow, well, I believe in God, so that means I'm righteous, is, is complete garbage. You need to look in yourself, and realize, are you really doing what's right? Are you really embracing the fullness of what that is? And you know, does that mean, And sometimes that means going outside of yourself and seeing people who are different than you and being you know being the what the real example of what this marriage really is
1: exactly, what does love look like? you know that's yeah. a question we've got yeah. to ask but ourselves so- what does love look like not this, not rules yeah. and and marginalizing people and and yeah. if, if someone is causing if someone is suffering pain, emotionally and physically from a belief system that you have, there's something wrong with your belief system. you know we need to question those those foundations of that kind of belief system because God is love. You know it, that's a really, really good point, Ellie. You also—I want you just to give a couple of those stats from your from your blog, if you don't mind. You—you you, like it's amazing. You—we you, were discussing this over the weekend, and you put this in your blog about like the recent Stanford study. And can you pick up on just a couple of those stats? Because it's just,
2: funny. It's just okay. So, real briefly, it's just great. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, just in response to everything that's going on, you know, we're talking about writing a blog post. I'm like, what am I going to write about? I'm just—I was just so stressed out about everything, and then I just thought about, you know, let me. Now, do your dec-
1: mother-in-law asked you for a blog. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I, was like, I gotta dig deeper into this if we're gonna find something that's that I can really get, you know, get passionate about. And that's when I discovered, okay, you know, everybody talks about, oh, well, pol- you know, black people are being targeted by police. You know, is that a real thing or is that not? Is it just perception or is it reality? You know, is it oh, because, you know, black people are more likely to commit crime, which is what a lot of conservatives say, honestly, or is there something, something actually substantial to that? And then I went, just did some simple Google search and found these studies that are showing, yes. Black people, on average, are more likely to get stopped for traffic violations than white people. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's really happening. But even in deep inside those studies, it's showing that when, those, when white people are searched, they're more likely to have illegal drugs, weapons, and contraband on them than the black people. So it makes, So when you're talking about trying to stop crime, it makes no sense for the statistics to be what they are. But that's the way they are. And that's the evidence that explains why so many Black people feel like they have been harassed their entire lives, because it, it actually did happen.
1: Talk about the, the traffic fines, how they these quotas, I mean, it's unreal.
2: Well, yeah. In some, in some police departments, there are quotas, which is like I mentioned earlier with stop and frisk. But yeah, in some places, there are quotas, whether they're specifically, oh, you need to get a certain amount of tickets or you need to get a certain amount of fines. You know, there's performance incentives. If, you know, because quotas is too political, there's performance incentives around a lot of policing. And there. there's no doubt about, that, doubt about that. And even without those incentives, there's still a financial benefit to a lot of cities and towns and counties to get all of that traffic money in. All of those, those violations for such, such simple stuff like not, turn, not using your turn signal or crossing over a double yellow line and you pay $100, $200, $300 fines. Well, if you're a poor black person, you can't pay those fines you, you're going to end up having to, you know, either accept the payment plan or, you know, uh, see the fines increase every month, or you know, get over an arrest warrant. Like the guy, like I mentioned, the guy from Lando still one of these people, the black men who died. Multiple times he got arrested for having a suspended license. Forty-nine
1: times, times, wasn't it? Forty-nine times.
2: Forty-nine times he was pulled over in thirteen years. Many of those times he was pulled over and cited it was not that he was doing anything wrong. It's because he had a suspended license for something else that happened months ago. And or he had a warrant out for his arrest. It's like, oh, was, was he a criminal? What did he do? Oh, yeah, he drove around with tinted windows. So the police cited him and he didn't fix it in time. And so now there's a warrant out for his arrest. What the hell are we doing arresting people for for because they didn't pay a traffic fine? This is ridiculous.
1: When well, they've got a broken tail light, and they haven't got the money to fix it it's and ridiculous. they get
2: nuts. It's ridiculous. So I'm like, you know, maybe we should dig deeper and not, I mean, and try and I wanted to try and find some substance that I that people could appreciate and actually respect even if they have not experienced this for themselves, you know? And so, you know, and and helping realize it's not just one tragedy. It's a statistic and a statistic that really matters.
1: It really does. And there's, and, and Ellie just honed in on on, on a couple of things. And there's, there's, if you dig deep enough, there's some incredibly good books and we've been putting up posts and we will keep putting up posts of, of books that you can read to educate yourself to understand. And you can just, there's Google, you can Google and you can find out what's really going on and get the facts. So, you know, we've got to be very, there's a lot, I, I see a lot of comments on our, and I'll say this on my social media of people that are making comments, but they don't have the facts. So until you shoot, don't shoot your mouth. Don't be reactive. You know, the first 30 to 90 seconds that you hear something or read something, your brain is not functioning like it should because it's trying to process this information in an energy wave and there's a whole chemical reaction and you're more than likely not going to access wisdom and you're going to make a wrong decision. So don't shoot a comment on social media or say something until you've actually calmed down enough and then you'll have the wisdom to get the facts. So when you, before you just, Write something or say something. Get the facts. You know, that's a, that's a good, that's a good conversation before you in a conversation with someone like, like both of you guys have been suggesting, get into conversations before you just react and get defensive and listen, be quiet. Hear everything the other person's going to say. Don't just immediately defend yourself. If you feel the need to defend, and I said it earlier and I'll say it again because I've done it myself in various different circumstances, not when all kinds of things, my kids will say something or my husband will say something or something. And I feel the need to defend myself. If I need feel the need to immediately be defensive, I've got to check why. And I may have a justified reason, but I need to check why first. So get the facts, check your reactions. Don't just shoot from the hip. And that way we can be much calmer and have these conversations that we need to have. You guys have been outstanding. I'm so proud of you. I love you both so much. And I want to announce to the world how proud I am that you are my son-in-laws, that I'm intensely proud of you, that I have such high regard for you both. I think you're both absolutely brilliant. And I have learned so much. You've enriched our family. You've enriched my children's lives, Jeffrey and, and Jessica, and all of our lives. You mean the world to us. And I want to thank you for that. I want to honor you both and thank you for doing this very hard conversation. It's not easy to have this kind of conversation. But I don't believe it will be the last. I want to invite you back again. And I have all kinds of plans. And I think you both know me well. When I get plans and, you know, Jessica and Dominique, then (laughs) lots of things are going to start happening. So I just want to thank you both. And before we go, is there something that each of you would like to maybe just say in closing?
2: Yeah. You know, one thing I really appreciated about you, Caroline, when I got to know you is in your teachings, you're always about fear versus love. and. How fear is so destructive and love is so creative. And I see that in this situation as well is that the fear is really destroying us. It's destroying police officers when they pull someone over, it's destroying the uh, people who get pulled over because they're black, and it's destroying people when they're trying to figure out how I'm gonna to respond to this crisis that we're experiencing right now. But at the same time, the love can also come in that environment and o- overcome the crisis that we're experiencing and actually give people a good reason to cry, to be honest. So I would just encourage people as they're trying to go about their day, like how can they show more love? How can they respond with love to these situations, especially towards people who they have, been, who they have not seen as their peers? You know, whether, you're, whether, you're, whether you think about, you know, how Jesus Christ lived, we think about how Martin Luther King lived or, or Muhammad Gandhi, you know, how can we bring more love to accomplish the goals that we want to see in our world.
1: I love that. That's beautiful. Thank you, Ellie. Jay?
0: Yeah. Um, You know, I I think what I'd like to say, you know, for the people who are watching this right now, if you've made it all the way to the end, you know, and and you haven't (laughs) turned it off because we've gone on, you know, I, I imagine that there are going to be people, be they white or black or a person of color who disagree with, Some, if not everything that we've said in this conversation, what I will say to those people is, you know, there must be a reason why we've spent this amount of time to talk about these these things. Uh, There are people out on the streets who are willing to risk their own safety to make their voice heard and make something known. I, I would challenge someone watching this to think for themselves why that might be. And even if you don't see the logic or it makes absolutely no sense to you to try and dig deep down and understand a scenario, like I mentioned before, that would sort of bring you to this very same place and just do some, do, do your homework. There are a ton of resources out on the net right now. Some of them may seem like complete, you know, fabrication and lies based off of your personal experience, but they're true to someone, they're true to someone's life. And there are many people out there who are showing you that they're it's true to them or that identify it with it as well. So my challenge would just be to open up your mind because in uh, my promise and I'm sure all, all of our promises are that we, we will do the same to have a meeting of the minds and, and be open to having a conversation and and, and and solving as much as we can. And then conversely, there are probably people of color, uh, black people who are watching this and, and they don't think that we are being harsh enough or or militant enough or and that we need to do more and and we can't go about this in a peaceful way and to that i would say the exact same thing
1: absolutely brilliant both of you thank you this is incredible i want to encourage you all to share this video share this it's on youtube it's a pod on podcast as well share this get this word out watch this space because we will be back with a lot more information and to help you those challenges i've put out there in the beginning about changing us getting in our heads and changing our unconscious mindsets, these are real, we're going to think of a whole lot of ideas that we can keep this in the conscious mindset. This is not going to just sink in and go away. This is going to be a focus of the challenge that we as an organization are going to move ahead with. I say that to you as Dr. Leaf, I will continue in this pathway because this is something that has to be detoxed and I'm all about detoxing the mind. And I want to thank Ellie and Jay again for your bravery, for your honesty, your vulnerability, I want to encourage you, all of you to read their blogs. They're amazing. They're on my on my website. And please, let's just stand together because together we can change this. We can change it. Remember the COVID example. Overnight, the world was on its knees in a way. We can do this too. Overnight, we can change something that is absolutely breaking society and it has to stop. Thank you both.
2: No, thank
0: you. Thanks. See you, Ma.